This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. What's up, guys? In this video, I'm going to be interviewing Rob Abasolo from Rob Build, and he's got some great strategies for you when it comes to making money through real estate in niche markets. How many of you ever thought about taking a yurt, putting it on a piece of property, and making $24,000 a year? Well, he's going to show you how do you do that strategy and several more niches that are definitely going to put money back into your pocket. You got to watch this. Buckle up and stay tuned because we're going to start this right now. Rob, how you doing? How you doing, man? Look, let me just say, all right, yeah. you, you, not only did you stick the landing on my my name, Rob Abasolo, but you also <laughs> stick the landing on Rob Built because most people yeah. actually say Row Built, which is incorrect. Probably. Best friends, my mom calls it. Everybody calls it Row Built. So you did your research, man. I'm I'm happy to see it. Or just maybe uh, I'm just not great with uh, spellings, and so I screwed it up that way. <laughs> That's true. But, yeah. Hey, you know, you've got so much we're going to break into. We got a short amount of time. I, I know you've got a hard stop today. So if we could just jump in really quick. If you tell everyone that's watching right now how you got started in tiny homes and in glamping and all of that, just kind of your backstory to investing. And then we'll get into the specifics of what it is that you do. Sure, man. So I was, um, like most of us at one point in our life, very broke. And uh, I was living in Kansas City with my wife. And we were living in a 1,100 square foot place, and we weren't making a ton of money, but we just knew that we wanted to move. So we're like, "Hey, what if we move to a city that's way more expensive, and uh, where the, our salaries certainly won't cover the cost of living?" And my wife was like, "Sure." So we moved to LA. So we moved to LA, and uh, we're renting our apartment for like 1,800 square. It's like 1,800 square feet. Sorry, no, it's 600 square feet. It's 1800 bucks a month, like 1850, something like that. Uh, so it's a big change from that Kansas City house that was like 1100 square feet, $1,000 a month. And, uh, you know, after about six months of living there, I just kind of got fed up of paying a landlord. And so I told my wife, like, I'd rather be broke and own a home than paying a landlord and losing money every month. And so she was like, Are you sure we can afford a house in LA? And I was like, No, but we'll figure it out. So we bought this, like, uh, it was like a, a home. It was like a two-two home with like a little 279 square foot apartment. Like it was a little studio apartment underneath. And I'd heard about this weird thing where people would pay you to stay at your place every night. It was called an Airbnb at the time. I think it's still around today. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had calculated that if I had rented this studio for like 75 to 100 bucks a night, I could make two to $3,000 a month. And that's exactly what ended up happening. I was making two to $3,000 a month. Meanwhile, that apartment that we were living in, I didn't want to break the lease. I was going to have to pay like 2000 bucks, something like that, which is a lot of money for us at the time. And so I was like, you know, I'm just going to throw it on Airbnb until the lease runs out. Well, it turns out that that apartment was actually making like one to $2,000 profit every month. So wheels are turning for me because I was making one to 2000 bucks there. My little apartment downstairs was making two to $3,000 a month. And my mortgage on this house was 4400 bucks. So very quickly, I was getting to the point where I wasn't paying a mortgage. And I was like, man, what if I could do this 10 more times? So I had this crazy idea. My lot was kind of big in LA. It was 6,600 square feet. And I was like, what if we built a tiny house in the backyard? My wife was like, are you sure you know how to do that? And I was like, no, I definitely am not sure, but we'll figure it out. And so I was like, it'll cost like 25 grand. We'll be done in two weeks and we'll be good to go. 
Uh, fast forward to 13 months later, <laughs> cost about $72,000. And we ended up building this uh, tiny house ADU, an accessory dwelling unit in our backyard. And uh, you know, I just knew that I had built something cool, right? It was a very special structure. It was a two-story tiny home, 300 square feet. All of my neighbors would always like come into my backyard without asking. They'd be like, hey, that's a cool house. Tell me about it. And they would walk into it without me being like, hey, can, you want me to show you around? They would just go straight into it. So I was like, all right. People seem to like this tiny house. And I was like, well, if I could put this on Airbnb, I'd probably make three to $4,000 a month. And then I got so much good feedback about this tiny house that I decided to build a replica of this tiny house a couple hours away in a small town called Joshua Tree, California. That one cost about $165,000. Took about a year to build. But that was really like the beginning of my journey with all of this. So when you're talking about tiny houses, because... You know, if I have a piece of property, say it's a half acre lot, and I just want to put a tiny house on there, there's entitlements that you have to go through in order to ensure that you can place that there, hooking up to sewer or your septic and, and water and all that. So what was that process like if somebody is, is considering this strategy? Oh, dude, in LA County, let yeah. me tell you, it was horrendous. I'll be very honest. I wish I almost started a YouTube channel before Rob built. That was going to be me complaining about the LA County because previous to this, I believe that of the 10,000 ADUs that were built in LA at that time in all of history, only 400 of them were legal. So in I think it was about 2017 when I built this tiny house, uh, maybe it was 2018, I can't remember. But LA in California had just passed this ADU law that basically made it way easier to build a tiny house like or an ADU, right? There were no rules or laws or really anything. There were guest house laws, but nothing for ADUs. And so I was really one of the first people to permit an ADU. And thus, everybody, all the plan checkers, the zoning and planning commission, building and safety, code enforcement engineers, they didn't really know the answers or they didn't really know the ins and outs of the code. They just knew how to say no because for 20, 30 years before that, it was always a no. So I remember, dude, I, I remember I got my, my, uh, my plan check plans back and there was about 200 red notations just scribbled everywhere. And I remember, man, I was like so close to crying. I was like, oh my gosh, I, I really screwed this up. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a failure, all this kind of stuff. And I remember just thinking like, all right, I think I just need to like sleep this off and like think about it for a night. So I slept on it. I reread my plans. I reread the notes. They started making more sense as I started to like reread everything. And it took about six months to permit this, this tiny home. It probably should have taken two. But because it was such a new process uh, going back and forth, I had to work with a draftsman. But I didn't know that the draftsman needed to be certified in California. And I had picked a Seattle draftsman. So then I had to work with an engineer in town. And then that engineer basically stamped the plans. And then... That engineer got like really sick for two months and basically ghosted me. And so I was like at a standstill and I thought I was going to have to spend another two grand on a different engineer. And he finally was like, I'm sorry, man, I was really sick or something. So it was a very long, drawn out process. I would certainly say not to let that discourage you. I think at that time, everything was so new because ever since then, dude, I mean, thousands of ADUs have been built in LA ever since. So I'd like to think. That I'm the pioneer of the the modern era in Los Angeles. Yeah. All right. So so if I'm considering getting started, I want to put an ADU on my property. What are some of the things that 
I have to be thinking about such as, you know, financing and, and everything that you went through that if you could go through a quick list for people who are watching this right now. In LA specifically, and I think this probably applies to a lot of California, but probably a lot of the country, there's kind of like ratio sizes that you have to apply to, like you have to abide by. So like my lot was 6,600 square feet. And so the max amount of square footage that could be on my lot was like 40% of that. And so I already had a main home on there that was like 1,500 square feet. So whatever I built basically had to keep me under that 40% threshold. So I would definitely make sure to do your due diligence with your with your local planning commission and zoning and building and safety and just call them and ask for those those sort of um boiler those boilerplate tasks that you have to abide by like all the different rules, red flags, all that kind of stuff, right? From a financing perspective, I think it's a lot easier these days to get something like that financed. There are two really easy find or I guess the three easiest ways would be cash which is basically yeah. how I cobbled together my deal. The second option would be a cash out refi. If you've got equity sitting in your property, you can do a cash out refi and pull equity out of your home, reamortize your 30-year mortgage and basically pay for it that way. And then your third option would be a home equity line of credit where instead of doing a cash out refi, you just do a credit line on the existing equity within your house. Those three are usually going to be the simplest. Otherwise, you can look at Hard money lenders, but even then, at that point, if you work with a hard money lender, you're basically going to have to pay them back at the end of the construction, anyways, which would require some kind of cash out refi or or something of that nature, or working with a private lender for like some kind of bridge loan. So, from a financing perspective, I'd say cash, cash out refi, and HELOC are always going to be the sort of the easiest steps for for pulling something like this off. Well, then if I was going to do that, you know, of course, your ROI, putting putting that into the mix, how do you know that the property or the house that you build, this tiny house on there, that people are going to want to stay there? Yeah, man. So I'm a big proponent of Airbnb. And so I think there's a lot of ways that you can research a market and corroborate if it's going to be a good investment for you, right? Like there are tools like AirDNA, which is a, effectively an aggregate of all AirDNA data, of all Airbnb data. And it'll tell you, it'll help you estimate how much money a particular Airbnb can make in a specific zip code, in a specific neighborhood, even all the way to the street, right? So I did that research beforehand, just looking on... I mean, if you don't even want to pay for AirDNA, you can go to airbnb.com, go to your neighborhood, and then start checking off boxes and filters that basically narrow the search down to homes that will be similar to yours. And it will actually show you, Airbnb will show you who in your neighborhood is doing what you want to do. And then you can go and look at their calendar and see how booked they are, right? You can look at how much they're charging per night. You can look at how many grayed out dates are on their calendar. And you can run that math. You multiply the grayed out dates by their average daily rate. And that's how much they're making every single month, right? So you can kind of do back of the napkin math there if you want to just get started and then move to other platforms like AirDNA, Rabu, Mashvisor, all the rooms. There are so many analytic softwares out there that can help you Research that type of thing. Well, what's it like then? If I, you know, if you put in an ADU in your backyard, it's going to generate for you maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars a month. Great source of income. But then again, you have somebody live, you know, that's staying right next to you. Is that kind of weird? You know, it changes your lifestyle. You, you know, if you like to, you have a hot tub, you like you, you don't like to wear trunks when you go in your hot tub. <laughs> happening anymore, right? Right. Well, you know, you have to be comfortable with the idea of a house hack, right? Like when people ask me. Hey, I want to get started into real estate. What's the easiest or best way? 
I always tell people to do a house hack. And a house hack is effectively where you rent out a room or a space or a unit on your property to help subsidize your overall mortgage. Because I, Glenn, I'm a big believer, the faster that you can not pay a mortgage, the faster you can accelerate building wealth, right? And so for mm. me, I was telling you, I was paying this $4,400 mortgage. That's you know, more than $50,000 a year in mortgage that I have to pay. And today, the amount of mortgage money that I've saved from other people paying it, like on my house hacks, I mean, I, I guess that my tenants have paid me probably close to $250,000 in house hack rents that I've saved over the course of the last five, six years. That $250,000, I've been able to, instead of spending it towards my mortgage, I've been able to reinvest it into my portfolio over and over and over again, 10xing that you know, several years in. So I think, yes, look, it, it, you have to be comfortable with other people being on your property. Maybe you're not so comfortable, but you're maybe not so comfortable but that you're going to let them stay in your house. But you know, a guest house in the backyard, that's pretty low visibility. Like I rarely see those people. It wasn't like a big deal or anything like that. Just don't um, have any window space in your house. Right. Well, we do, but we have curtains and everything like that. And uh, you know, I open the curtains in the morning and I drink my coffee and I stare at them and I wave. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but but I will say, like, I kind of enjoy the communal side of short-term rentals. And so yeah. if you're not that kind of person, if you're not a naturally friendly or warm or extroverted person that likes hosting people, then a house hack is probably not going to be for you, right? So, but for me, the, what I saw was this opportunity to save thousands of dollars every month in my mortgage that I could then use to go and basically buy more real estate. So it was kind of addicting for me. So when you're when you're building these, I think it's one bedroom, full kitchen, half kitchen. What what do we got there? Yeah. So it's a it's a one bedroom, one bath, but it's a two story. And it's also a it, it has a full on kitchen, mm-hmm. and it uh, it has a half bath. I mean, it has a I put a like a a shower in there, but a bathtub could easily fit. As a matter of fact, my Joshua Tree tiny house has a bathtub in it. So I tend to splurge a little bit on the kitchen space because even though it is a tiny house, the one place that you'll find the most frustration in a tiny house is the kitchen. You don't want people bumping elbows. You want people to be able to like cook. And be happy about it. So most of the time, when people walk into my tiny homes, they're like, "Oh my gosh, this is a normal sized kitchen." And I, I designed it like that on purpose. And what is the average square feet of these homes? So I usually consider a sm- uh, a tiny home anywhere from like three to five hundred square feet. It, it can be smaller too. And then you from five hundred to nine hundred square feet, that's considered a small home, which I've built one of those too. Uh, and then really anything bigger than that's just a regular house. So I would say a tiny home. Typically three to five hundred square feet, but the ones that I've built are usually three hundred. So when you go small home versus tiny, do you find the ROI goes up on a small home, or is it better just to stay tiny? Yeah, I, I think so. I think the more time that you can add more space and add more beds and heads, as we call it in the short-term mm-hmm. rental space, you're gonna make more money. I just have a unique fascination with tiny homes and I like building them. And I mean, I don't know. Like I think the numbers are probably pretty comparable. Like, to be honest, the uh the tiny house that I built in Joshua Tree, for example, I built that for 165k. It appraised for 222. I got 75% back, which was 165k basically. So it was a free house for me to build basically. And the first year that I listed it on Airbnb, it grossed I think $78,000 with a profit of $57,000. So yeah, could the ROI be better? Yeah, sure. But it's a free house that made me like. 4500 bucks in profit every month the first year that I ran it. 
Yeah. Now this year, it's probably a little less like that. I think it's closer to $3,000 a month in profit. But again, I'm not complaining about that. So at a certain point, when I think you're, uh, when your cash on cash is infinite, uh, ROI kind of matters a little less to me. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too. And you know, people go to your website. I got a link below. Uh, why don't you tell them what the site is? Oh, yeah, sure. So you can always find me at the Rob Built YouTube channel. But um, I teach people how to start their short-term rental businesses every day in my mentorship program called Host Camp. You can go over to hostcamp.com, book a team with uh, book a call with my team. And we basically just uh, kind of lay out the blueprint for you how to start, optimize, scale, and grow your short-term rental business. Uh, no matter if you want to do rental arbitrage, if you want to do glamping, if you want to do tiny homes, if you want to do single-family acquisitions, we pretty much cover it all. Yeah, now guys... Uh, I'll put that link in the show notes for you to go there because I, I want you to go there and watch some of his videos. I've watched many of his videos that he has there. He goes through all these homes, how he's built them, even gives you all the decor. So you, you want to get you want a door, click on the door, it'll show you that he put it in the house and it takes you right to the Home Depot page where you can order it. So it's really unique in that he's wide open. But what he mentioned, what I want to get into right now, because I know we're pressed for time, is this whole idea of glamping. I thought when I saw this at the very beginning, it's like, what the hell? You're people are wanting to stay in a yurt in the desert, <laughs> yeah, or an airstream. I mean, yeah, where did that come from? All right, so we had built these tiny homes in Joshua Tree. It was really starting to take off, and I, you know, you know, how I said you can look at Airbnb and sort of guesstimate how much your competition is making. And so I was like doing some research, and I saw these people in Joshua Tree were charging like one hundred and fifty dollars a night to stay at a teepee. And I was like, well, that's crazy. And so I like looked at the calendars and they were booked like three, four, five months in advance. And so I started running some calculations and I saw that they were making like six figures a year off of a single TP. And it, it made me angry. I was so mad. I was like, I can't believe that other people are making six figures off of a $3,000 TP and I'm not making six figures off of it. So I text my, my partners and I'm like, guys, what if we put a yurt out in the middle of the desert and they were like, no, we're not going to do that. And I'm like, come on, come on. When have I ever been wrong about this kind of thing? And no, no, Rob, we're not going to do that. I'm like, guys, you just need to trust me on this. I'm telling you. And then they were finally like, you know what, dude? Buy the damn tent. Shut up. Just buy it and leave <laughs> us alone. And I was like, great, I already did. So I spent like three grand on this tent. And so we ended up putting it out <laughs> in the Grand Canyon uh, in Arizona, just as sort of a prototype proof of concept. $3,000 tent. And we put it out in December thinking, hey, you know what? Like, uh, we'll make 500 bucks a month and it's going to be, you know, $6,000 a year. But hey, double our investment. Well, we didn't expect that when we listed it in December when it was five degrees outside that we would be booked 100%. And so basically, we were booked 100% that first year. That original tent has grossed $172,000. There are some startup expenses and everything yeah. like that, but it was just kind of crazy the power of this like $3,000 tent. So then I was like, well, let's do another one. And so then we bought a yurt, like a, like a Mongolian hut. And that Mongolian hut, we were charging like 300 bucks a night. And then we bought this Airstream. It was like a vintage Airstream. They had just remodeled it and they just didn't want it anymore. So they took a loss on it. We bought it for 33,000 bucks. We put it out there and we were charging $189 a night flat. And uh, our first year, we grossed $44,000 on it. So we made our money back right, you know, that first year. And then we built a, a little tiny A-frame that was like less than 100 square feet. I think it was like 10 by... Yeah, it was probably like 10 by 10, something like that. 
And uh, that little A-frame cost us $35,000. And we were booking it, I think, for two fifteen dollars a night. And in the three years that we've owned it, we've grossed, I think, 157000 So it just kind of goes to show you that people really like these little unique experiences that are, you know, they're they're glamping, they're glamorous camping, but it's still out in the elements. You're still freezing. You're just not having to poop in the ground, right? We have a compost toilet, we have a memory foam mattress, but people like it, right? It's kind of got this mystique about it and it helps them create the memories and they all they really want is that Instagram photo, you know? So where do you find the property to put a yurt or something like that down and you can leave it there full time? Well, initially at that time, we didn't want to take the risk of buying property without mm-hmm. knowing if the concept would work. So I actually put out Craigslist ads uh, that said, Hey, do you have any extra land? And I put ads everywhere. Joshua Tree, San Diego, Julian, the Grand Canyon, San Francisco. And I basically put out these ads that said, Hey, do you have spare land that you're just sitting on? Let me pay you to rent it. And so I got like 20, 30 people that responded to me and they're like, what'd you have in mind? And I was like, well, I want to put a tent on your property. They'd be like, okay, sure. What do you want to pay me? And I was like, how about 25% of gross revenue? And they're like, great. And I was like, we live on site and manage. And they're like, sure. And so basically it was people that lived on a farm, basically, you know, or they lived on acreage and they had a house there already. Easy for them to walk over and maintain it and manage it and everything like that. So it was a pretty symbiotic relationship for us for many years. Well, do you find that those people would turn around and say, well, hell, why don't I do this? And then uh, revoke your lease and put their own year up and start making 100%. You know, it's funny. A lot of people do say that. They're always like, well, why wouldn't they do this themselves? But, mm-hmm. you know, that's just business, right? Like you can say that about any business. If you want to re- lease a, an apartment and turn it into a very lucrative, I don't know, dog grooming shop, why, why doesn't the owner of that building do it themselves? Because they don't want to do it. They want to lease it to someone and let someone else do all the work, right? So I think uh, same thing here, right? It's the same thing with the rental arbitrage. I think that's another one that I hear like, well, why doesn't the landlord just do it themselves? And it's like, because they don't know how. There's too much risk there. There's too much education that they don't want to take or learn how to do it. They're scared. You know, There's so many reasons. But for them, it's it was very easy to be like, hey, we just need you to check on everything and clean it and we'll pay you. Easy as that. We'll handle everything else. So when you make it very easy for the other party, I think it's it's hard for them to kind of run away with some of those more like, ooh, I could do this myself type ideas. So if I was considering doing this, what are some of the things that you would tell me I need to be you know, considering uh, before I just go out and, and buy a yurt and try to put it somewhere? Yeah, yeah. So this was sort of the Wild West back in the day, right? So I think yeah. what we didn't do is we didn't research the permits or we didn't do anything like that. We just kind of were like, yeah, let's do it. We, I'm a big fan of what's called like the rapid prototype, which is just try to figure out how to get it cash flowing and working. And if it does, you know, then we can go out and, and do it the right way. But I would say, make sure to look at your county laws and your local laws and call your county and see. There are some counties that I've called where I said, hey, I'm looking to get a permit for this type of thing. I want to put a tent out. I want to rent it on Airbnb. And they sort of just laugh. They're like, Haha, you don't need a permit for that, right? Those are the types of counties that I'm typically looking for. There are other types of counties that are like, all right, well, if you want to put a tent out, then you're going to need a soils engineer and a civil engineer, and you're going to need to get a conditional use permit and get the consent of all your neighbors and do this and this. Those are the types of cities that I try to avoid. you know. So I would say do your research and make sure that it's something that's allowable. There are a lot of cities and states out there that if the unit is under like 150 square feet, 
then you don't need a permit for it, you know? So like, I would definitely make sure that you're looking at the municipality because yeah, again, this was like four years ago. So it was like no big deal for us. We did it and now we're actually developing a full-on 60-unit glamp site that's like fully developed and we're getting the conditional use permit. We're going to City Hall. We're doing it the the right way. But definitely make sure that you're complying with all the codes and everything like that. Yeah, but you, I mean, it has to be a location somebody wants to go to as well, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm a big proponent of investing in national parks and state parks. Uh, I like to call them Mother Nature's Disneyland. You don't really have to market the Grand Canyon or the Smoky Mountains or Zion or Yosemite, right? Like people know about those different places. You don't have to church up why they're cool places. People sort of like have heard about them all their lives, right? So mm-hmm. I say if you're wanting to do this type of thing, look for those types of areas simply because those are usually the outdoor enthusiasts, the adventurists that want to go out there and explore these these kind of off-grid experiences. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you've got such a different perspective when it comes to making money from real estate that I just haven't come across before. And, you know, I talk to a lot of investors. And so I think people are watching this. They've got a ton out of this and they go to the links below and they go check out your site. They definitely should. You, I mean, you've done videos on all of everything you're talking about and so they can see what it is you're doing and how it works. And hopefully it inspires people to start investing. If they think, hey, I just don't have the money right now. I mean, these are simple things. Three grand to get started. You can't beat that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I put it all out there. I put how much money I make, how much money I've lost, uh, mistakes I've made, things you should watch out for. I really try to put the whole hosting journey out there uh, simply because why not? It wasn't out there. when I, I didn't have anybody to ask questions to or I didn't have YouTubers to to watch. So I was like, yeah, if I could be the person that provides some insight, if I can help someone save tens of thousands of dollars in mistakes, like that's what I'm here to do. That's great. Well, hey, I know you've got a hard stop. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on, spending some time with us to, to go through this. Yeah, and I yeah. uh, hope everybody hits the link and, and goes to your site. Yeah, for sure. We'll have you on for a part two. All right. There we go. Right, Take care. Cool. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 